In this episode of the Science Communication Journal Club podcast, we talk more about using social media for science communication. But first things first, a bit about us. Hello and welcome to the Psychom JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communication approaches. At Psychom JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a way that scientists can easily implement. Today we have behind the mic the usual suspects, Sherry, Heather and a very special guest. She is the second place winner for the State Your Mission Challenge of the Psychom JC for 2009. She is a storyteller, a Psychom consultant and a trainer. She is Virginia Schutti. Hi! 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 <laughs> Virginia, it's so great to have you. Please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks for having me. I um, got my PhD in ecology in 2014, and then I transitioned into doing communications. And much of my communications work has been working with institutions rather than communicating directly to audiences as myself on my own channel. So I make websites, I run social media, I do strategies, all for institutions like universities or nonprofits that are talking about science. So I have lots of opinions about how things should be done from a branded institutional standpoint online. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's wonderful. And that's so relevant to the paper that we're going to discuss today, yes. which, which, <laughs> which you chose. Yes. Um, okay, so before we start talking about the paper, let's give Virginia the credit for being the second place winner of our State Your Mission Challenge for 2019. Thank you. So yay, Virginia. <laughs> and we actually got this year's um, State Your Mission Challenge going on 2020 and we've got multiple uh, wonderful submissions. Have you seen, looked at the submissions, guys, girls? Oh, are you asking me? No, not yet. I'm, oh, I'm a slacker. Did. I did <laughs> what okay. Iowa did, you guys. Sorry, I'm in an Iowa mode. Oh. It's going to take me a few days to roll out the results. Sorry. <laughs> what about you, Virginia? I've been seeing them as they roll out on Twitter since everybody's using the hashtag. So I've been just kind of scanning them as they come across my feed. Yeah, that's it's wonderful. Well, this year we decided to do things differently because it's an election year. So we want people to flex their voting muscles so this year instead of our uh, instead of members the volunteer group at uh, science communication journal club to choose the best what we thought was our favorite we actually opened it up to uh, voting in the psychop community and since yesterday oh my god votes has been coming in and we have clear front runners and and one thing i i was we were hoping to get out of this for scientists is to kind of flex also their muscles in promoting themselves. And I, we're just going to have to go out there and poke them to do it. Cause <laughs> there are some people who are clearly doing a good job and some other contestants aren't really getting out the vote. So, so I hope that uh, this is going to make a difference. Okay. So the topic that Virginia introduced was doing Psycom through social media and 
It was a paper that was a critical analysis of how NOAA uses social media. And um, I'm going to let Virginia tell us what the paper was all about. Sure. So the paper actually goes back to um, basic fundamentals of how dialogue is established. And they were using another paper from 2013 to kind of identify some key principles um, that might be relevant to an organization like NOAA. And they specifically looked at NOAA's Facebook page as an example. So they set up these essential research questions and dialogic principles they were looking for and then asked questions and analyzed Facebook posts coming out on NOAA's Facebook page. And so this the study was done a couple years ago, so keep that in mind. Um, but what they found is basically that, um, no offense to NOAA, but they weren't following these dialogic principles. And uh, so then they moved into why would this be and what actionable steps can be taken next if uh, an organization like NOAA wanted to change the way they were doing social media in order to better follow the dialogic principles. So what are these dialogical principles? So these are criteria they decided needs to be met in order to classify something as a dialogue, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So they had basically four, and they are engaged with publics individually, not just as a group. So I think this means not just assuming, people often talk about, um, you know, in the State Your Mission Challenge, or when I talk to clients who haven't done uh, creating mission work before, creating a mission for their group or their communications, you'll often say that your goal is to convey science to the public or talk about science with the public. But the public includes many different people, including us, including communicators and including scientists. And so if you want to reach the public, that means that your messaging is going to be all over the place because you're trying to reach literally, literally everyone in the world. Exactly. And so research has shown that if you target specific audiences, you are more likely to reach them because you'll be able to um, identify with specific people instead of just humans. <laughs> um, the second guideline for using social media dialogically is to identify organization community managers by name during the dialogue. And so this is, again, one of those actionable steps. A lot of the advice for SciComm can feel like it's very vague. So, you know, identify your audience and then connect with them and those are really big ideas. How do you actually do that? This one is an actionable step. Um, identifying organization community managers can be as simple as in your Twitter bio saying, you know, welcome to NOAA tweets by Virginia or something like that. Uh, same on a Facebook page. If you have in the about section, you know, tweets or posts by whoever, then you've identified your organization members by name. You could tag them in so you, you can get to their personal pages or not. Just putting a first name does a lot. I've heard from people anecdotally to change the way that you interact with people and that people interact with you. Well, that's um, because it, that's probably because it personalizes the yes. relationship and people don't really, uh, I'm, I'm saying this from the marketing world, people don't really like to interact with brands. They like to interact yes. with people. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. Social media was set up to be human to human, to exactly. foster those connections, not to be human to brand. <laughs> Um, and I think these days people know there's someone running social media for a brand. You know, if I put up a good post for an institution, um, some of the comments will be something like, you know, get this social media manager an award or something like that. People know it's a human. And so if you identify the human, it just makes the interactions more genuine and more authentic. Yeah, that's true. Third guideline for using social media dialogically is that organizations have to establish community rules for dialogue. And this is so people know what to expect 
and so that you reinforce rules that you are enforcing as you go along. So it can be as simple as no bullying or threats of violence won't be tolerated. These don't have to be specific things like make constructive comments. They can just be simple guidelines in order to establish your space in the way you want it to be. Uh, I've seen a lot of Facebook pages these days put up rules. You see this more in private groups or um, frankly, groups on Facebook that are centered around memes than you do on brand pages. But it's things like, you know, no threats of violence, no bullying, no, um, you know, no negative comments or put downs. It, it doesn't have to be uh, anything to do with your organization's study topic at all. But mm -hmm. how would you create a space where everyone would want to come and talk and be part of the conversation? Guideline number four for using social media dialogically is that users with views who disagree with each other have to somehow be encouraged to have a dialogue. So if people argue back and forth and no one's mind is changed, then you could ask, what's the point? Why do you exist if people are just coming to state what they already think and then they leave after causing kind of conflict? And so um, having a dialogue can be as simple as the organization stepping in to mediate, or it can be, again, going back to those community rules, uh, setting up those community rules so that people understand that you are allowed to state your opinions as long as they are not um, you know, overly confrontational or as long as you're not saying you're absolutely wrong about this, if it's an opinion or, or, or something like that. So making sure that you're encouraging dialogue and not just people stating what they already know so they go away, you know, with their views reinforced. Boy, that could be hard sometimes. I've seen some yeah. of those. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, especially on social media, that's, I think, a challenging uh, space for that. And I, I think we'll chat more about that as this podcast moves forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. It's good to, uh, you know, frame this this four-point framework, I must say that Noah, regardless of all these lack of person-to-person -person communication, uh, I specifically really like their Instagram posts. Um, mm. But again, there's a lot, a lot of one-to-one -one interaction. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, yeah, I don't know. Just, I thought I'd put it out there, but uh, it's, it's always like you said, Virginia, Social media is something people go there to make personal connections. Mm -hmm. So it's important to get personal. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So how about we elaborate on some of the main conclusions on the publication uh, and the discussion points that were made during the Twitter chat? So what, what did the authors, investigators find about Noah? And just let, tell us a little bit more. Um, well, they basically found that Noah has lots of room for improvement, or they did back in 2014. Uh, so the organization community managers were not identified by name, either in individual posts or on the about page. Um, there were no community rules for dialogue established in the about section of the Facebook page. Um, and then they uh, evaluated some of the other principles by asking specific things like, can users who come to the page who aren't NOAA initiate posts? And they said no. And so they said that was um, something that discouraged people from having conversations and meaningful dialogue. Um, and then they also rated posts on how well they initiated a conversation instead of just being a one-way broadcast and encouraged uh, 
people who visited the page to have a change in their behavior. And they decided that only 2.3% of Noah's posts did those things. So overall, they decided that Noah's page was not following the dialogic principles as laid out in the 2013 paper by Kent. All those results were looking at the posts that Noah initiated on their Facebook page, but they also analyzed what Noah did with people who commented on those posts. So essentially following up with conversations. If the Facebook posts were supposed to be starting dialogues and not just one-way broadcasts, then what did Noah do with the comments that people were leaving underneath the post that Noah had started? And so they found that only 10% of questions asked by users on Noah posts were answered by Noah. Only 8% of public comments expressing distrust in science were addressed. Oh, sorry. Only 8% of the, of the comments did express um, distrust in science. So that one's kind of a way better, but nothing to do with you know, Noah's actions, um, I guess, in response. Um, and then 74% of comments expressing distress were related to climate change. So it gives you a breakdown of not many people who came to the page were expressing distrust in science. Most of those that were, it was about climate change. But then only 10% of the questions on Noah's posts were answered by Noah. So essentially, this gives you a, a view of who's coming to the page. And so people who I think are already if you want to call it pro-science or trusting in science, something like that, those were the kinds of people that were commenting on the posts that Noah put up. But then when people asked questions, very few of those, only 10% of those questions were answered. And so I think this gets into much larger issues about what is the goal of a Facebook page for an organization. For some organizations, I think meeting people who want to be talking about science, attracting those people to your page is exactly what they want. For other organizations, maybe the goal is to reach outside of the people who are already seeking science, and in which case, you know, this might be an indicator that that's not happening if that's one of Noah's goals, but we don't know Noah's goals because we're not Noah. <laughs> um, but regardless, answering only 10% of questions asked on the Facebook page, as a social media manager, this was one thing that I always pushed, I always do push, and I always um, make time for. It feels hard sometimes to take a day not to produce any new content, but just to engage with what's already out there. Mm -hmm. But I think once someone comments on a post, that means that that person is genuinely interested, hopefully, most of the time, genuinely interested in a conversation. And that I think is a really um, ripe opportunity to change someone's mind, to further their interests, to engage with them and show the human side of your organization. And so to me, again, social media is about those human-to-human -human connections. And if you are making posts and not following up then on the people responding to them, then are you actually meeting the goals that you would like to accomplish with social media? Are you using social media as a tool as well as you could be? Mm -hmm. and, and coming, thinking also about the purely... Um, technological aspect of trying to buy, well not, try to influence Facebook algorithm to get more reach on social media, the more you can get people to interact with your content and having a conversation, it helps, helps you spread your content across the Facebook more effectively. So actually answering those questions and getting people to, to respond to something from a technological point of view of becoming, of getting more reach, 
that's also valuable. So that's another yeah. aspect of it. I think one of the, I think this is a really interesting conversation. Um, we're, we're talking about kind of two different things though. And this is the way that I took the paper. Um, I'm coming from a communication from a civil dialogue background. Um, and there's sort of two, two things that are, that are happening here. There's the actual like human, human connection, like what you said, Virginia, um, which is how people are actually communicating regardless of the medium itself. But the medium itself, as you just said, Sherry, actually shapes how people are able to communicate, like you mentioned about the algorithms and what people are seeing and how they're seeing it. Um, and then again, the, just the, the ability, um, the kind of communication that's available. I mean, if we're talking about communication purely in social media, and in this case, purely on a Facebook group page, we're talking about something that is literally just words with no nonverbal communication. And nonverbal communication in communication, of course, is the bulk of, of how we communicate with each other. And so there's sort of a, a, like two pieces to this, right? We're talking about sort of what kind of communication, what's the quality, and then what's the medium for that. And I wanna kind of talk a little bit about, um, with that thought, one of the things that you know, came out of the Twitter chat was I thought um, was really interesting. One of the participants in our chat actually stated, maybe measurement is in the, in the eye of the evaluator. And I think her, her comment was really in response to like the objective uh, for social media use by an organization, which is what we've just been talking about here. But it really kind of got me thinking about what are we measuring uh, when we're talking about social media use and how we create space or cultivate dialogue. Um, and so with that thought, it was, well, then what are we actually measuring, right? So if we're, we're talking about, is this actually creating dialogue? Are we actually meeting the goals of the organization? Okay, then we're, are we looking at the wrong thing? Because we're looking at like likes, sharing posts, like stuff that's easy to measure. But the question is, were the outcomes for the users actually met? And then as you mentioned, Virginia, was the outcome for the organization actually met? And so I don't know that we've sort of, I don't know that we've really covered that um, necessarily. And I think that that's something that in this space of, of research, so when we talk about creating dialogue, whether it's through social media, whether it's on, on other online forums, whether it's in real life, we have to talk about the medium piece but we also need to talk about sort of what were the outcomes from that? Um, because really, if our goal is to create communication that ultimately would change behavior or move the needle in a meaningful way, like changing perceptions, increasing understanding of a given topic, or resulting in action, then I think we need to look at sort of what, what are the outcomes from that communication, not just what's happening within that. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think there are two sets of measurements that need to be done. That's one is measuring the achievement of the ultimate goal of the institution. Um, but the likes and shares and comments and how many comments were answered, how many questions were answered, things like that. Those are what, when I teach social media, I teach them, I call them diagnostic posts, uh, sorry, diagnostic measurements. Because, uh, well, you could say that at the end of a year on social media, your uh, institutional goals weren't uh, met through social media. But, <clears throat> but the question, then the question is, well, why? Is it because people didn't interact with our content? Was it because we didn't answer enough questions? So both types of measurements are important. And you have to get the diagnostic 
part of you have to get that getting people to reply first right so that then you can meaningfully answer the final ultimate goal questions. So it's like saying, I want to write an essay, but I don't know how to put sentences together. So you measure what is your uh, level of expertise or level of knowledge in putting sentences together. And if you don't have it, well, maybe that's because that's the reason you can't write an essay. See what I mean? So Heather, you made a fantastic point about having an eye on the ultimate goal and whether or not we achieved it, but we need these middle point measurements as well. So I I think that's interesting. And I I agree with you. Um, I mean, so, so I guess what, I mean, I think we're all trying to say, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that, you know, the, the measures in this study about like social media engagement um, per se is, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And I think maybe exactly. that's part. That's yeah. the point I'm trying to make with all of the research on how we communicate uh, yes. about science. Yes, exactly. Virginia, you, you know, want to add something? Yeah. So I feel like it's really interesting when we talk about conversations of what we're measuring and why. You know, one thing that is so glaringly obvious to me as a manager in this paper, um, and I, I feel like this carries over into a lot of other situations, but. This paper was written by people who chose NOAA for specific reasons that they lay out in the paper to analyze their Facebook page specifically, again, well-reasoned arguments for why this was an appropriate analysis. But it's extremely clear when you read the paper that they did not work with NOAA to analyze data and to make conclusions and recommendations and talk about why things weren't that way and then how they created an action plan together and how it went. Instead, they analyzed the posts from the outside and then published. Mm-hmm. And Noah responded to this paper, but if you look at Noah's page today, their Facebook page, they do have community guidelines up about uh, how they reserve the right to delete comments that are, you know, violent, abusive, irrelevant, off-topic, that sort of thing. So they have community guidelines up, but they do not identify their community managers. Um, there's a post, at least as we're recording this podcast, that's fairly recent where they asked a question. So it's a question to engage their followers but then there's no responses to any comments from their followers. So it's clear that these guidelines laid out in the research paper are still not being met. And so if we're trying to do research and measure things in order to move communications forward and to meet our goals, I think huge questions remain like, number one, the why are there not more partnerships between managers and researchers? So why was this not a partnership that was set up and I have no background in this. I don't know if the researchers chose to do this study without contacting NOAA and asking if they wanted to be partners. Um, but I feel like for organizations in science, it's very different than in places like marketing. So in, in a, for a normal business, let's say Nike, somebody huge that lots of people have heard of, they do market research all the time on their posts and their social media. And I understand that the budgeting is really different there. But if these are standard practices that help businesses meet their goals in other sectors, then why is that not carrying over to science? Why is there not why are there not closer partnerships to do research on communications between social media managers or media managers in general and researchers who are really interested in these questions? That's and a great, I think, great point. I think you've got yeah, yes, I agree. Yeah. So I'm happy to talk about that for a little while. And then I also would like to talk about then why these, why action hasn't been taken to meet these kind of guidelines. What might be 
pulling people away from implementing the suggestions made in the paper. Um, Why do you think? Well, so in my experience, there are a couple of things. <laughs> um, I think any institutional social media account has at least three stakeholders on any post that create tension for who the ultimate for, for what the ultimate goal of a post is. So when you post for an institution, the institution is a stakeholder, so the institutional brand has to be upheld. If you are a Department of Environmental Science within a university, you're gonna have to make sure you're meeting university guidelines or the university will come in and you know chastise you or shut you down or whatever it is for your social media. So you have to make sure that the university or the big organization's reputation is upheld. You also have to make sure if you're covering someone's scientific work or if you're covering, if it's an advertisement for an education program or if it's a picture of a wetland or whatever, whoever you got the material from, whoever your focus is about, you're probably borrowing their brand and taking control of it for that post. So if you are featuring a scientist who does drone work, their brand is in your hands. And so you have to make sure that you are representing them in a positive light. And again, it's important to remember here that social media managers for organizations, unless they are doing a model that is not common, they are not journalists. They are not impartial arbiters of information. They're often public information officers, which are charged with, you know, creating a brand, maintaining a brand for an organization. So it's not, it's not the same as a journalist would do. You have input from the people that you are posting about. Um, and I often have to get approval from, uh, from the people that I'm posting about. So it's two stakeholders, the institution, and then whoever's in charge of the specific content you're putting up. And then the third stakeholder on any post is the ultimate consumer, whoever you're trying to reach, whatever audience you're trying to reach through those posts. And those three stakeholders essentially pull priorities in different directions and create attention. Um, if I was just myself talking through my own channels on social media, all my posts are made to meet end users' needs and goals and wants and likes. So I'm creating for my audience. I don't have to check with anybody but myself about whether I like what I'm putting out. Um, but having those three stakeholders constantly present for any post by an, an, an institution, I think, creates a lot of tension for who gets to say what goes out and what tone it has and what even the goals are for social media more broadly for an institution. Yeah, these things, these, um, you're making very good points. And it's interesting um, how much reinventing the wheel is going on in scientific institutions when it comes to social media, because these are exactly the same issues that um, brands went through when they started using social media. Social media often was used in a silo. The, they very often, uh, more often than not, in brands started using social media without having a um, social media policy and training yeah. in, in place, no yeah. disaster response policies. The goals of using social media wasn't clear. So that gave rise to a lot of bad social media and it's social media is public. So you can see how a lot of brands actually were not only ineffective, they looked bad. So you're exactly right. It's important to have all these things in place and get all the stakeholders involved. But one thing I worry about is having too much bureaucracy and having to check with too many people mm -hmm. before you can post something interesting about something exciting you're doing in the lab. How do you, do you think we can, institutions can strike a balance between worrying about the, um, 
you know, the institutional goals and the chief marketing officer at the institution and the, and the PIO and no, what is, what do they call it? Public information officer. Yeah, that's uh, right, PIO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you, because a lot of great things that happen on social media is, is so spontaneous and that's what mm-hmm. makes, yes. makes it amazing. So how do you, how do you balance that? I think this is when having a well thought out social media strategy in place early is really helpful because if you have a social media strategy that says we want to be nimble and respond to trends as they are happening, if that's already in place and you have it approved by the people that you're ultimately reporting to at the top of the organization or even outside the organization, uh, it's also approved by immediate bosses, it's understood by whatever staff you're going to be going to, let's say there's a trend on a specific, you know, dolphins, and there's someone at your institute that researches dolphins. If everyone understands that this is a priority for the institution and why, so how these, how these being priorities can help advance the institution and therefore all the scientists at it and everyone employed by that institution, if everyone understands this before, then running into a lab and saying, dolphins are trending, do you have a video I could use that has these sorts of behaviors becomes less of a burden and more of a fun challenge to meet. Um, I think you're exactly right that often these organizations are, uh, you know, unlike Nike and the marketing sector, (laughs) strapped for cash. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I feel like a lot of times you're right that there's not as much SciComm training as might be desired. Frankly, I meet a lot of people who are education specialists who have been asked to do social media on the side. Uh, And so they don't have, this is not their full-time job. They can't just sit down and answer questions as often as they may like. So, you know, that tension I described, even with perfect working conditions exists, but oftentimes the resources just aren't there to create even the best of working conditions. So I think in the absence of training, in the absence of, you know, adequate time and personnel, um, having policies becomes even more important so that you know this trend is worth doing, this trend is not worth doing. I've made it clear to the organization and to the people I report to that spending time on this particular task today, just answering questions instead of generating new posts is a top priority. So I I think sitting down with all the relevant stakeholders, making a plan that everyone agrees to and everyone's aware of will help set everyone up for success as things unfold in the future. But but with respect to individual, let's say graduate students, because there is so Mm -hmm. much conversation on Mm -hmm. social media about the abhorrent working conditions of postdocs and graduate students. And ultimately this, you know, puts a bad face on the institution. How would you, because in a social media policy, there has to be room for people to freely express their opinions. And how how would institutions deal with that? So I, my job as a consultant is less to make recommendations and more to outline options. But most of the clients I work with end up having a policy that says something like they do not police individual accounts associated with the institution. Um, And instead they let people say what they like because they also can't police free speech at conferences or in the grocery store, there's only so much that is that a single social media team can be responsible for. And when you get into managing individual accounts and their opinions, then you get into issues of, uh, you know, 
suppressing your employees' right to express themselves and, and things like that are pretty messy. So um, what are some of our call to actions or call to actions for science community in general or science institutions? What do we make of this study and how do we use it? Yeah, for using social media in SciComp. I think it would be great if social media managers could have the freedom to openly share the data behind how their social media is doing with researchers who would like to analyze it. So I, I know a lot of social media managers who are in my position where they manage you know, institutional social media and they, if they do reporting, it's kept to a minimum because that's you know, an ask on their time and their time could be spent elsewhere. But it would be so cool if there were an open resource where people could dump in analytics on a certain time scale or even just describe what analytics they'd be willing to share. And researchers could search that database and make partnerships and we could all learn, we could all experiment with each other and we could move the field forward, I think, at a much faster pace. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Are you going to talk about your online courses? Yeah, I'd love to. So I am trying to do what I can for that aspect of not having enough training for people who have been asked to do social media on the side. Uh, they may not have taken the time or have had the time in the past to do as much training as they would like. So I'm, I'm developing with a couple different organizations courses focused on social media for advanced social media users. So if you are used to, you understand the basics of how to make a tweet, how to do a retweet, how to thread, uh, you understand that you, you know, you've already set up your Facebook page, but you haven't had the time to create a social media mission statement and really get your core values or your strategy together and articulate it in writing to share with your organization. So if you're looking for advanced social media tools, we'll cover things like uh, posting schedulers, we'll cover Instagram stories, which is often not something that people talk about. So I would like to do what I can to help people uh, learn from all the time that I've spent just posting and posting and posting strategies that have worked for me to do things efficiently and to use those advanced tools. Okay, awesome. Wonderful. Um, well, I, I think, you know, if we're promoting calls to action for science organizations specifically to engage in dialogue, especially, you know, via social media, it's also important, I think, that, that organizations themselves um, get clear on the pros and the cons um, for the investment into such activities as creating dialogue via their social media space rather than just using it as a one-way communication tool. Um, because promoting open space um, and engaging in true dialogue, that means responding, creating conversations around these things and mitigating um, you know, different conversational dynamics with users, really needs to be balanced with the resources to manage and to maintain such a space on social media. Because if you don't manage it and maintain it well, it's a risk to both the organization and to the folks that are using that space if it's not properly managed. And also with that pros and the, the pros and the cons for organizations in creating that space and engaging in this process of creating real dialogue via their social media channels. It's also really important, I think, for organizations to really understand what are the restrictions um, or rules that apply to their organization. And for universities, I think sometimes that's more clear. But for government organizations, there's, a, there's more tensions that might be um, or more potential issues, regulations, rules, um, formalities, um, as well as the stuff that's unwritten or unspoken um, that are going to impact how much they can do or are able to do 
with with regards to creating these kinds of spaces for dialogue on social media, like such as you know being able to like delete user comments, ban users, etc. Um, in terms of management tools. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, my call to action, which was actually uh, we also discussed during our December podcast, which uh, was a we discussed a paper in which uh, interaction between paleontologists was analyzed on Twitter. It was a, a wonderful conversation. I invite you all to go back and listen to it. And it's actually very related to the conversation we're having right now. So it's good to have continuity. Um, but um, my call to action to really understand best practices in social media, which is relevant to the course that Virginia is offering, and also to my own book, which I'm giving away during our State Your Mission Challenge to our winner. Uh, so um, there is a lot that we already know in the marketing world about what about the best practices for uh, social media. So we just have to keep an open mind and kind of try to push away thinking of marketing as taboo and a bad thing and leverage the expertise that is available in the marketing world and to learn from them. Um, And on a related note, we should also learn what is already known in other fields about effective communication, psychology, human decision-making. There is a lot in the field of social sciences and psychology that really directly applies to using social media because as Mark Zuckerberg himself said, he said that social media is more about psychology than it is about technology. Um, so it's important not to just focus on the technology and um, kind of open your universe of reading papers into all these different disciplines that tries to understand human behavior and integrate it. There was a tweet uh, some, I think a few weeks ago when some person who does SciComm, he was asking what SciComm papers should I be reading? What is out there? And I kind of said, kind of tried to gently said, well, yes, there are SciComm. I read SciComm papers, but you should also be, uh, so what I do personally is set up alerts, Google alerts, and then I look at, uh, have a subscription from PLOAs, anything that can come into my mailbox from different disciplines. So it is important that you don't pigeonhole yourself into just papers that talk about psychom. You got to expand your universe of uh, things that you can learn about being a human being. And I think that's a big piece that is missing. I think that's really important. And I know that at SciComm JC, we've had a lot of communications, you know, in the past as well about the, the interdisciplinary space um, that is science communication. Um, and I think that's something that our group does well. We're an interdisciplinary group. Um, but I think that that's really important, what you said, Sherry, about making sure we're reading across disciplines because social scientists have been doing this forever. Mm-hmm. And just because it wasn't called science communication doesn't mean that it doesn't apply. Exactly. And so there's a long history and a ton of resources um, in social sciences. So being able to take those and apply them to your science communication work is really, really important. So if you're not sure, find a friend who's a social scientist and start there. 
<laughs> in common yeah, yeah. yeah um heather is actually what is your specialty in in political science right actually actually i have an undergraduate degree in communication focusing on political communication and in um, public administration and public policy um political science are my special graduate work and let me just say that social science papers for somebody who comes from biology like me is like someone in a, in a public member of the public who's reading a biology paper and doesn't understand a word of it. So SciComm, one as important aspect of SciComm is translating papers from different disciplines for other scientists. So we need to um, help each other understand our own fields and apply it. Absolutely. And that's where it's good if we work together because we can all figure out how to speak the same language. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about, what do you think about this, Virginia? Oh yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been branching out lately uh, out of SciComm literature that's published in scientific spaces and beginning a lot more into you know, how people make decisions, how you make meaningful connections with people. Cause it's all about trust these days. How can you open up the brand and, and instead of taking it into a sterile space where everything is scrubbed to make sure you don't say anything wrong, how can you show honesty and openness and genuine interest in dialogue rather than just the one-way broadcast from a talking picture? Absolutely. Well, that's all the time we have for today, ladies. <laughs> but, but I'd like Virginia to tell us where people can find her. If you want to keep up with the courses I'm developing when they come out, you can follow me on Twitter or you can sign up for my newsletter. I'll be announcing those in those spaces. And whether you work for an institution or you can make any communicate as yourself, I'm always happy to do consultations or social media reviews. So get in touch with me anytime and I'd be happy to chat. My social media handles are all VGW Shooty for my full name. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and you can also look at my website, virginiashooty.com. I also do things on YouTube, but they're just for me and not for an institution, which is really fun. So how do you spell Shooty? Shooty is S-C-H-U-T-T-E. A great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm not the best. My strength is not in correct spelling of names. So <laughs> always have to look up your name. <laughs> yes. well, I, had, I had to get used to it for a while. When I first started dating my husband, too, I thought, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Unfortunately, that's all the time we had for this 15th episode of the Science Communication Journal Club podcast. Thanks a lot to my wonderful co-host and to Virginia for being our amazing guest. You can also find recaps of our Twitter chats on our website at scicom.org and leave a comment and get in touch with us. Subscribe to our newsletter to receive updates on all our upcoming events, our Twitter chats, the topics, the podcast releases and the summaries of interesting SciComi topics. Again, go to our website www.scicomjc.org. If you're interested in doing an internship with our team, get in touch and we will together find the best form of collaboration. Our podcast is recorded by the SciCom JC team. It's produced and edited by me, Nevena Christozova. Our music is composed by Musical Cocktail from Audio Jungle. Thank you for joining this 15th episode of the SciCom JC podcast. If you liked it, let us know and please share it with your friends. Till next time and stay nerdy. <laughs>